It's that time again. Hello, everybody. Happy Friday. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Murray Sodder and the News. I hope you all are doing very well. I hope your week is going accordingly. I hope you have exciting weekend plans. Big show today. A lot to address, a lot to establish. Many great guests in attendance. I do want to introduce my first guest, who's with us right now. He's lived a hell of a life, quite the resume. We have Chris Pilkerton with us. Chris, how are you, my friend? Your first time I'm on great, the show. Roy. How are you? Thanks uh, for having doing, me. Doing well, man. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, first and foremost, though, give us a bio, a background, how it all started for you, all that fun sure. jazz. Sure. Um, so I'll start at a law school. My first job was as a district attorney in Manhattan. I worked in the Office of Special Narcotics, um, and then after 9-11, moved into money laundering and, and tax crimes. Um, after that, moved on to the Securities and Exchange Commission as an enforcement attorney, and then was in private practice and working at a, a large international bank. And then I got the opportunity to go over as general counsel at the Small Business Administration, uh, which was an incredible experience working for Linda McMahon. Um, and uh, Linda McMahon, who folks know, um, was the one of the founders of the World Wrestling Federation or WWE. Um, and she was the small business administrator at the time. She stepped down in 2019 and I was asked by the White House to take over the role. And you never quite know how long those acting positions are going to go. Right. But I ended up taking the role uh, for about a year. So I was in the cabinet for about a year. I uh, was able to do a lot of really interesting programs for small businesses, particularly around underserved communities. Uh, as you remember, back in 2019, the economy was was very strong. And so we were looking to get folks into the workforce and did a lot of work in that space. And then right before COVID hit, the White House asked me to come over to run something called Opportunity Now, which was a program that was to really help streamline federal, state and local activities around underserved communities. Um, and then March 2020, everything was focused on small business through the Paycheck Protection Program and a number of other things. So uh, my attention was really focused on that um, to try to help small businesses all around the country. Uh, left the government in 2021 um, and uh, was able to uh, see that you know the impact of what happened for underserved communities, particularly in the access to capital space, was really led by community development financial institutions, so kind of nonprofit banks. So I work in that space right now, continuing to work with small businesses and underserved communities, uh, do some work in the academic world, trying to develop a number of initiatives related to that issue, something called Small Business Core, which is kind of a private sector driven uh, effort to really get graduating students into small businesses, uh, as well as doing some other work uh, for underserved communities with folks like Ice Cube and, uh, and and other things. So it's been a really fascinating career and uh, just really enjoying the work and excited to be here today. I love it, man. I love it. So going back to how it started, sounds like your, your first main profession that you got into early on was law. Uh, you, mm -hmm. were, you were a lawyer. Uh, talk about your, your early on practices and, you know, kind of like the entry uh, of where you started in that field. Sure. So uh, I went to law school in D.C. Yeah. And the what, nice thing about what, what law school? 
I went to Catholic University okay. uh, and I actually cool. ended up later on teaching there and being uh, an assistant director of, of public policy there. Okay. And it, it all kind of tied together because for me, it was, you know, the nice thing about going to law school in DC is whatever your interest is, there is an association or center or something that focuses on it. So I had friends that were working in very unique areas um, for, you know, internships, summer internships, what have you. And for me, the Department of Justice was there. So I was able to work in the organized crime and racketeering section of justice. I was able to work in their international overseas um, program as well. And so I got to see really how law enforcement, not just from a local level, but from an international level, really could you know, play a role in policy. Um, and so the, the office that was really kind of the dream job for me was the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And it wasn't necessarily because I watched too many episodes of Law and Order, uh, which obviously was helpful, but it was really just sort of, you know, New York is at the epicenter of so many important cases. Um, and so the opportunity to work there, I worked for a gentleman by the name of Robert Morgenthau, who many will know that name. He was the District Attorney of New York for a, a you know, number of decades fascinating fella. And the leadership there was just so tremendous under his watch. And so I had the opportunity to work in special narcotics. So that was working with a lot of kind of low level street cases um, and then kind of making their way up to uh, larger international cases and wiretaps and, and things of that nature. And so by way of background on the on the finance side, I was, you know, I was a lawyer, right? And you hear that Lawyers aren't necessarily good at certain things, but I didn't really have a finance background. So I went to grad school on the weekends and really honed in on, on money laundering, which back in you know, 99, 2000, obviously banks had AML programs, but everything changed dramatically after 9-11. Um, so that experience was fantastic because it really gave me investigative experience, gave me courtroom experience. So when I took that to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, that was helpful because you just learned so much about cross-examining someone. Um, but by the same token, all of that work uh, was, you know, particularly when I was initially there, it was impacting communities. Um, and, and you were seeing, you know, back in 99, uh, at that time, Mayor Giuliani had implemented something called the broken windows approach to policing and prosecutions. And that was really helpful for me because as I moved on in my career, and you know, working with small businesses and, and things of that nature, I saw that the different elements of policy you know, can come together in, in fascinating ways. So when I went on to teach policy, I always uh, taught these students uh, the, more about practical things. So I'd ask them to come up with plans to implement something in the DC, Maryland, or Virginia area. It could be something as simple as getting a stop sign put up, but sort of dealing with government, dealing with, with the bureaucracy. And uh, you know, jokingly, I would say to them, all right, Let's, let's play something called the brain game. So compare two things that have never been compared before. And they'd look at me like, what is this guy talking about? But it would basically be like, okay, compare the chair on the, uh, on the floor here and the clock on the wall. And the best answer I ever got was someone saying, all right, well, they both have human parts. You have, um, you have legs uh, on, on the chair and hands on the clock. And the reason I would do that was basically say, look, there are policies out there and their core parts are the same. But the process is always going to be a little bit different. So what pieces can you take from something that's been passed before and try to push that through, whether it be through policy or legislation or what have you? And so when I went into government, 
I was able to kind of, you know, play that same brain game myself when we were trying to do things around the pandemic in the White House and and at the SBA. So like I said, it's I've been fortunate that each part of my career has kind of informed the next. I think I think it's I think it's great, man. And I love I love your entire resume and your background and everything you've accomplished. It's been quite the journey for you. And I, I want to talk about, you know, the whole money laundering thing. Uh, give us kind of the day-to-day operations of the different, you know, cases you would investigate, you know, how you would go about doing that. Because that's a huge, huge thing that happens in our country constantly with so many different individuals. And, um, you know, uh, some of them get caught, some of them never get caught. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this, this could be a much longer conversation. I know this is, this no, but it's, I mean, it's, but you're right. I mean, this is, you know, putting it in context, this is 20 plus years ago. And so I think the ways in which money was laundered was a little different um, in large part because, you know, this was before crypto and, and all these kinds of things. But I, I think the basic pieces of a money laundering investigation are still the same. And they're different from your kind of courtroom drama cases because so much of them are on paper. So, you know, it's a lot of tedious work. It's a lot of documentation. Um, and and for, fortunately for me in New York, I had the great benefit of working not just with the great state agencies, but you also work a lot with the federal agencies. So, you know, for example, one of the most impactful agencies that I worked with was the U.S. Post Office. Um, and people don't realize that, you know, they've got an incredible enforcement arm. They've got really talented agents there. Um, but you also work alongside very talented people. And of course, the the FBI and the DEA and a number of other places. Um, when I initially was engaged in that piece, it was around, you know, money laundering um, for, for, for drug crimes. Um, so there were pieces of that. There was also the smuggling piece of how you'd actually bring different drugs in. Um, since 9-11, since the development of the Patriot Act, there are obviously a lot more tools um, that allow for that. But I do think that it's, it's incredibly important for these different agencies to sort of remain vigilant. Um, you've probably heard the phrase, you know, if that person just sort of use their, their crime for good or the intelligence that they have or their brilliant screen, scheme or, or what have you. So there's always going to be, you know, these criminals that are sometimes one step ahead of the, uh, the police and, and law enforcement. Um, so that's why that vigilance is just critical. And I think one of the things that is just so, so important is that law enforcement, you know, really be trained as sort of subject matter experts in these things. Some law enforcement are generalists, um, but I, that's why when you have these divisions within certain uh, prosecutors' offices and experienced FBI agents, that's so helpful because you know there's a there's a lot of smart criminals out there, and we just have to be one step ahead of them. No, amen, amen, amen. I agree. I agree. Very well said. And I have to say, how much easier has the technology being so evolved uh, made it uh, for people to money launder. Um, well, it's, yeah, it, it cuts both ways, right? I mean, it's, it's easier to track presumably, but those same folks have figured out ways to be creative. Um, and so I think when you're talking about moving things 
you know, overseas electronically, it's instantaneous, right? It, everybody knows that. Um, and so, you know, kind of the the old ways of money laundering through yeah. you know, mortgage fraud and securities fraud and things like that, they're still there. There's no doubt about it. Right. But I'm, I'm, you know, at this point, your your more experienced money launderers are probably looking at uh, certainly using technology in a, a much more advanced way. Chris, how do you feel about offshore accounts? Do you think even that's a, a sketchy, sketchy area? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's certainly an element to that, um, you know. So I, I don't think you can paint a, a broad brush, you know, with with sort of everything around that because there are. There, there are tax components and and what have you, um, but yeah, that I mean, I think. Did you ever go oh, keep keep going? And I'm gonna ask you, Blake. Keep going. No, no, I just think I mean, you know, there, there's there's always transparency that that's needed, and I think what the, the best the best way that that's being done, I think is, and this is what I saw certainly back when I was at DOJ and other uh, places, is the the agreements between countries to really work together on yeah. that. Um, so those are those are typically national agreements, international agreements um, that, you know, have some teeth. And, and that's what you want, obviously, in a national agreement or international agreement to have some teeth associated with it. So, for example, when when I was in government, and this isn't money laundering, um, there was uh, the USMCA, and that was the new trade agreement um, between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And there were some real teeth associated with that. And the reason being is we were trying to protect workers and trying to protect, you know, businesses and really have fair and free trade. Um, and so I, I say that because in any kind of international agreement, you really just to have clarity as to what your rights and, and responsibilities are. I was muted while you were talking, my bad. Um, no in regards to the money laundering cases that you investigated, though, what was the most intense? What was the craziest one? Because I'm sure you know you have your your one your one that takes the cake, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you know a lot of the stuff that we did was, I'll say, behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, so as I mentioned, this office was up and running, had focused a lot on on tax revenues. Um, but some of the work uh, around kind of potential funding for, for terrorism um, was really the stuff that was, was just absolutely fascinating. I think ultimately the most important, um, you know, you often hear from people associated with the FBI, for example, that you never hear about, you know, some of the most important cases because they were foiled before they became, um, you know, matters of, of danger or what have you. So I, I think those kinds of successes, you never quite know where you are on the continuum as far as your investigative work. Um, but certainly, you know, I was definitely very proud to to have worked there because I think, you know, back when I was there, I, I was there in the late 90s and into the early 2000s, you really, we were really doing the right thing and that was something that Mr. Morgenthau made very clear um, from the get-go. And uh, yeah, you knew you were in a place very special. Right. No, I know. Absolutely. And I see you were the head, you were the senior counsel at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, that's very impressive, dude. While we're on the topic of finances and money and money laundering, you know, I, yeah. <laughs> I thought I would bring up, you know, um, you know, um, 
a, a big a big entity and you know they're they're known for investigating a lot of this stuff and a lot of the evil situations that go down in the financial world financial world but what was that like so it was it was different very different than the DA's office so right. one of the reasons that it really attracted me to the SEC was the fact that it was financial services investigations right. um, as you know the SEC doesn't have a crim criminal element. They they pass that over to the Department of Justice, but they do have sort of the the civil investigative right. piece of it. And for me, the Manhattan DA's office was not just a substantive experience, but also a tremendous training ground on just how to ask questions, right? I mean, you're an expert at it. You do this for a living, asking questions, but sort of knowing what to know, what, what to ask, what not to ask, and being able to cross-examine some of these folks. Because, you know, when you're sitting across the table from some of the most sort of well-known CEOs or, you know, their, their senior C-suite folks, um, these folks have uh, very talented lawyers that they're working with. They've been around the block a few times. Um, and so just sort of like the, the DA's office, when I was at the SEC, the path was very clear. Uh, I was in enforcement, so I, you know, we had full support of the the director of enforcement to really sort of go after the bad guys. Um, and there were a lot of really interesting cases that that came through in that time. So this was in the 2004, 2006, 2007 timeframe. Um, and so there was a lot of changes in the law, too, um, because, you know, you had things that were developing like Dodd-Frank. Um, and, and, and some of the Sarbanes-Oxley was early in 2001. Um, and I know these all just sort of sounds like names of, of legislation and can kind of, you know, get, get boring just in the names and stuff because they're all just, you know, named after Congress people. Right. But these were some dramatic changes um, because these were, you know, the big cases that folks um, will, will remember, um, you know, things like, like Tyco and and uh, other big cases that sort of passed through during that time, which was actually Tyco was interesting too, because that the SEC had a piece of that, and so did the Manhattan DA's office. So you also learned the, I'll say the turf, right? Uh, when you had you had certain cases that were going to have a criminal element, uh, you learned how to work with other agencies. And when I was running the SBA, that was something that was super helpful as well. We talk about that in a in a book my co-author Jaron Smith and I wrote about working with different agencies. Um, and I think the most impactful agencies uh, or you know, prosecutors' offices are the ones that don't seek a turf war. They're the ones that figure out ways to work together. And, and I have to ask you, because I know the SCC is constantly investigating uh, various companies mm -hmm. uh, for wrongdoings. Do you know how many investigations they open up a year? Uh, have you ever done that research or even on a on a daily basis? I mean, how many cases were were you noticing or, you know, paying attention to that they were dealing with on a daily basis? Was it quite a few? Yeah, oh, it's definitely a few. I mean, the enforcement staff alone, you know, at the time was several yeah. hundred people. And, and that includes lawyers, but that also includes accountants and um, folks who are market experts. Um, and so that includes not just you know, accounting fraud, you know, cooking the book, so to speak, or insider trading, which is obviously another yes. piece of that. But there's a lot of other securities crimes and things that, that are out there that kind of fall under those general topics. And speaking of insider trading, these politicians get away with it every single day and nothing happens to them. But if somebody like you or, not, you or I does it, 
we're in we're in jail for years and years. I mean, you talk about just a, yeah. I mean, so you're talking about the the stock. You're talking about the stock act and yeah, stocks, yeah. insider trading, all this shit. And they can, you know, they it's like they have all this advanced insider information, and they know exactly when to sell. They know exactly when to buy. It's just it's it's part of the game. They enrich themselves like no other. It's amazing. I mean, they have briefings on all these things. They have the ability to dictate and regulate, to ask questions of the people that are making those policies, right. um, to have, you know, letters back and forth that I guess, you know, maybe through a FOIA, you could get those, but there that's, it's conversation essentially for lack of a better term, just letters saying, you know, you need to do something this way, which could open up an entire market, you know, whether that be the energy markets or any of these different things. So, you know, when I was in government, you know, you're completing all of your forms, you get constant ethics training. Right. Um, every agency has what they call a, a DAO, which is the, the designated agency ethics official. And so I, I do think that reform and focus on that is something that is just, it, it's so critical because you're right, it is another form of insider trading that I think needs to really, really be looked at. Oh, yeah. And, and Chris, you know what drives me nuts is stuff like Dodd-Frank. These politicians get get this stuff passed, and they get massively, massively rich. And and they think about you know going forward how they benefit off their own bill with with various transactions and so on, so on. I mean, you know, this is just pure corruption. It's pure cor- And think about how it interferes with with the various markets and the everyday citizens, and it only benefits the elites in a lot of ways. I mean, what are your thoughts on this stuff? Well, there's a, a, I don't know where the saying comes from, but they say that, you know, you can work in DC and you can either get rich or get power, but you can't get both. Um, But it seems to your point, you know, there are folks that that have achieved that. Um, And so, yeah, I I agree with you. Um, the, The Congress and really government was never set up by the founders to be a place to work for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, It really was these sort of, you know, citizen servants uh, to come in, bring your expertise from whatever field you know, um, and really help the Republic to advance and then leave and let kind of someone else do their turn. The idea of people hanging on to these seats for as long as they do, and somehow, you know, we, we know publicly what their salaries are, but somehow when you look at some of the the financial forms, they've gotten incredibly wealthy. So there's a lot of questions around that. But I think it goes to the greater point of what do we as citizens want for our government? When you see people that have been in in you know the Senate for, for 40 years and they celebrate that and you see all the other senators clapping and stuff for them, is that something they should be proud of? I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I think it's you know, public service is a great thing, but I also think that turnover is important so that we as a country can advance because you get stale because if your expertise becomes the, the rules of the Senate, then you're not really bringing any new knowledge to financial services or energy or housing or tax policy or anything like that, that you would get as someone in the private sector. And, and Chris, um, did you do much investigation around the 2008 time when uh, the crisis hit? I mean, were you in that field? Back yes, then? I was in the private sector at that point. Okay. Um, but certainly, I think the ramifications of that have been, you know, 
they impacted what I was doing in the private sector as, as they did so many different folks, particularly in financial services. Um, I was never, you know, a mortgage attorney or housing attorney or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, and I think a lot of people, when the pandemic started, actually, you know, obviously there wasn't shutdowns around 2008, but there was a lot of comparisons because that was the most recent, you know, kind of crisis that, that we had had. And I think when you look at the, the work that we did uh, during COVID with underserved communities being the real focus of, of my area, um, what we're trying to do in sort of my, my co-author, Jaron Smith and I in this book, Underserved, that we wrote, we're really trying to figure out ways that you can kind of put together kind of a plan for, for the next crisis. Um, but also a plan that you don't necessarily need to open up the playbook on day one of the plan. You can implement some of the things for underserved communities in advance. Uh, so one of the things that we did is when I was over at the White House, uh, Jaron and I were trying to figure out ways to streamline different programs. And I will tell you, we would sit down with the Office of Management and Budget Personnel and literally go through grants and things and find out that these things were, you know, they'd been around for years and years. They hadn't been paid out. So we were trying to repurpose that money um, and figure out ways to to help different folks in a way that gave them opportunity, gave them vocational training so they could get a job or start a business. Um, and I think that's, to me, that's sort of the the future of what I think a lot of different folks in this country want. They want opportunity. The, the focus of our book is sort of around Lincoln, and that was his vision for for America. And I think we're in a position where we can do that again. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, what was it like, man, being the head of the U.S. Small Business Administration? Rory, it was it was amazing. I, I can't tell you. First and foremost, I was you were a cabinet member, man. That's like a once in a lifetime, man. It was it was really it was really amazing. Um, first of all, having worked for Linda McMahon, you know, I kind of I learned from what I, who I consider just to be a, a tremendous individual, wonderful CEO. Yeah. Um, and then when I got the job, um, you know, traveling the country, working with some small businesses that were just just absolutely fascinating, creative, uh, so dedicated, you know, sort of like any small business, you know, took the punches, but kept fighting back. Great achievements. Um, and then I worked with a, a tremendous staff um, who'd be able to really kind of advance things. And there's no group better, you know, in my estimation than the career staff at the SBA, because you know, they'll always pick up the phone, try to figure out ways to get to yes, to help a small business. Uh, and it was it was tremendous. And so the opportunity to work not just internally at the SBA, but with my counterparts at Department of Labor and Education and Treasury and other places, we were really able to put together what I think were some lasting programs. Um, and I, I'm hopeful that some of those programs will continue into the future just because they help people get jobs, they help people start businesses, um, and there's there's a lot more opportunity there. Chris, did you ever did you ever look into how much the Biden uh, Biden administration has reversed uh, from all the accomplishments and policy you guys put forth? Yeah, I think so. For example, one of the projects that I worked on really closely at the SBA and then through the government. Um, was the deregulation activity. So you may remember the that president- That was very impressive how the Trump administration- Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, cut so many regulations. And, and it was great. I mean, he passed an, or he signed an executive order yeah. that focused on um, 
for every new regulation, the agency had to get rid of two. Right. right? So it was the, the two for one was kind of what it was called inside the walls. Ultimately, that translated, if you look at the numbers, to about eight being removed for one. Yeah. which is incredible. And we at the SBA removed just shy of about um, or identified about 10% to be removed that were duplicative and not impactful. Um, but I just saw something the other day that the National Association of Manufacturing, uh, their CEO put out a report that said all of the new regulations are currently costing the manufacturing industry $3 trillion, which is outpacing what the manufacturing industry is making. And for those, they identified small businesses. It's a charge of about $50,000 per employee for small businesses. So these numbers are huge. They're real, you know, and small businesses, people think, oh, well, it's a few hundred people. It's a small business. No, these are, you know, mom and pop shops and, and what have you. So these are real dollars, real money. Um, and quite honestly, money that's, that's not going back into the community to help pay, you know, tax bills for schools and firefighters and, and police departments. So, you know, there's a whole host of things, um, but I would just point to deregulation as just one real, real critical piece. Yeah, Chris, I, and I love talking to you, man. And I got a few more questions for you, then I got to let you go. I got to get to my next guest, but I, I want I want to um, mention um, what what was it like, like being around Trump? Did you get to spend a lot of time with him? Like, Yeah, so... Um, you know, certainly had the opportunities to be in the Oval Office and cabinet meetings. Um, and my experiences uh, with the president were always very positive. Yeah. Um, the issues that I was focused on and continue to be focused on were underserved communities. Um, and the president was very focused on on small business. Right. Um, you know, he, he's obviously he was a, is a businessman. Um, and he saw that as a huge opportunity. So whether myself or administrator, my man, were working with him, that was always, always a focus. Um, and but I remember, you know, one one meeting in particular, um, we were talking uh, just, you know, it was a it was, it was a group meeting, but but talking about uh, homelessness, um, which was an issue that I was particularly focused on. And, uh, and and he was so focused and, and concerned about it. And what are we going to do? Um, with the various groups that were at the table. Um, and so I say, I, I give that example because, you know, these are the things that the media doesn't see. Um, and uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll share something else with you. Um, during uh, COVID, um, I lost a brother to suicide. And very sorry, man. No, thank, thank you, Rory. And um, the president, in working with myself uh, and, and a number of other folks, uh, wrote an executive order um, on behavioral and, and mental health associated with, uh, you know, what was happening during during COVID. Um, and then wrote a personal note to me, you know, which uh, I will always hold personally. I will always hold that. Um, but quite honestly, he was. Um, in my interactions with him, always very concerned about underserved communities and what we were doing. It wasn't just, you know, just sort of lip service. It was, what are we going to do about it? How can we get more folks out there to help advance these things? So, so like I said, very, very positive experiences and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. This 2024 is going to be very interesting. Uh, before you take off here, you, you know, it says here, that uh, you worked as a chief legal and regulatory strategic officer 
for the nation's largest nonprofit community develop, development financial institution, um, concentrating on small business support for the undeserved, as well as a compliance director at J.P. Morgan Chase, where he was named one of the heroes of the Fortune 500 by Fortune Magazine for his humanitarian efforts in Liberia. Yeah, so um, I continue to do the work at Axion Opportunity Fund, the nonprofit bank, community development financial institution, um, and always trying to help out underserved communities, small businesses. We have not only access to capital, but we have free technical assistance to help people start small businesses. Uh, on, on the fortune piece, it was uh, very exciting working with JP Morgan. Um, very, very long, very long story. I'll try to do it super short because I know you got to go but um, was able to help some folks in Liberia, the orphans who were impacted by Ebola back in the 2014, 2016 timeframe. And JP Morgan, to their credit, when they found out that my wife and I were working on this, trying to help some of the children there, they got involved. And ultimately, I believe with the partnership of DHL, we're able to get about, I think it was three tons of food and clothing sort of airlifted and dropped uh, into Monrovia in Liberia. So I got to give a ton of kudos and credit to the JP Morgan staff because uh, that was not something that, you know, impacted the stock price, but it certainly was a, what an amazing thing to be a part of. And Chris, what haven't you done, my friend? I mean, you've been, <laughs> you've been the senior counsel at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, like mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier. You were an assistant district attorney in Manhattan, Fortune 500, uh, you were the uh, chief legal and regulatory, like I said, for the largest nonprofit. Uh, you were uh, the head of the U.S. Small Business Administration in the Trump cabinet. Dude, I mean, you've, you've done it all and you're, you still have so much life to go, buddy. Well, until today, I hadn't been on your show. So that's a, that's a box I get to check today. Uh, so that's exciting. And I, I appreciate that. you having me. And then, as I mentioned before, this book that Jaron Smith and I had the opportunity to write. Uh, about Lincoln and about underserved communities and what we can do for the future is something that I've really enjoyed talking about and, and sharing with folks, both in the public sector and private. Yeah. And tell everybody what you want the biggest takeaway from that book to be before, before, I, before I take off here. Sure. The, the biggest takeaway for me is that we have an opportunity now to achieve what was missed during Reconstruction. Uh, we have a, a time period where obviously there is all kinds of political discontent. Um, but regardless, underserved communities are will always be a part of, of who we are and, and taking care of people will always be part of who we are. Right. And the philosophy that we implement um, in the book is really kind of the bipartisan push to be able to to help these communities and not in ways where you're just throwing money at people because that doesn't necessarily do it, but in a way that we engage with local leaders find out what really needs to get done, what, what needs to be done, and then do so in an accountable way where you actually use data uh, to make a determination as to what programs work, what, what don't, and then you, what, what programs don't work, and then you figure out ways to change those accordingly. And, and there's a key element of bipartisanship to this because if you just let the parties continue to fight over what works and what doesn't, and they don't have skin in the game, then we're gonna just be kicking the can down the road. Very well said, very well said. Um, and the final thing to conclude here, I, I got one quick question for you. Sure, anything. The biggest and proudest case that you've ever prosecuted? Uh, biggest and proudest case I ever prosecuted was probably one of my very first cases. 
uh, where I had, after the case was over, I had the opportunity to meet with some of the people on the block that had been um, really kind of terrorized by, by a drug group. Um, and they were just so happy and excited that they were going to be able to get their block back. Uh, and, and that meant the absolute world to me. Nice, man. Nice. And I, um, I praise you. Keep it up, oh. man. Thank you for coming on. Uh, you inspire me. You know, I just, I adore everything you're doing. So thanks for, I really appreciate being here. Absolutely. And we'll talk, we'll talk to you soon. We'll, we'll get you back on, you know, I could talk to you all day. I would love it. All right, man. God bless you. Have a great weekend. Um, cheers, man. You too. Thanks. All right, stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back. Rory Sider in the news coming right back with Joe Allen. the zebra look the way it does? So embarrassing. Hey, focus. Is that what? No, it's different now. Paul, you've been on my mind recently. Yeah? Because you keep popping up in my dreams. You don't do anything, you're just there. So, this specific person, the remarkable nobody, I don't still have that experience. Do you have a picture? Have you been dreaming about me? Have I been dreaming about you? Yeah. There's like a hundred messages. Somebody wants to interview me. This is strange. Maybe you should take a minute and think before you do anything drastic. Why me? Uh, I don't know. I'm special, I guess. How does it feel to go viral? Who's actually had a dream about me? You're scaring me, Paul. I'm going to have nightmares. I wish I was the one people were dreaming about. Me too. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's something. How's he dealing with all this? We're not even the type of people that like attention, you know? Do you think other people are seeing you naked? Maybe thousands. Mm. I hope I'm behaving through your dreams. Oh, no, you're not. So I'm finally cool, huh? I didn't say that. You hear that, Janet? She's saying I'm a cool dad. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I really feel like you're playing with fire here. Zach, please help me! I'm not actually doing anything to them. You know, fame can come with some less desirable side effects. You should be prepared for that. Maybe we should cool this thing off. What? What do you mean? It's embarrassing. Which part? I guess I'll, uh... I guess I'll see you in my dreams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so of course not. <laughs> Thanks. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? 
And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or adempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back. Rory Sodder and the news coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. My next guest, I'm glad he's back with us. Uh, joining uh, the show again is uh, Joe Allen. Joe, what's going on, buddy? Rory, how are you? Good, man. Good to see you as always. What's been going on? What have you been directing your focus towards? Give us the 411. Give us the rundown. Well, I hate to be with you for such a short period of time, but I, I got to bounce at the top of the hour, so I'm going to cram it in quick. Yeah. Uh, I've been uh, in the last month all over the place from New York to Miami uh, to Lynchburg, Tennessee, uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, of all places, wow. Wow. but to various conferences and meetings, uh, trying my best to uh, drill the concept into people's heads that maybe these technologies are going to be even more pervasive than they already are. And maybe these technologies are not going to work out as advertised. Uh, I have um, a book tour coming up. It's really more of a lecture series. Uh, it begins November 5th in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, moving to November 8th in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, November 15th, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, November 18th, Kansas City, Missouri, November 19th, Dallas, Texas, and then um, perhaps Austin, Texas, perhaps Phoenix, Arizona, and then definitely Los Angeles, California, December the 2nd, uh, ending off to Larry, California, December 15th. So uh, the lectures will be standalone, but there is definitely a cohesive narrative arc to all of them. Uh, if any one of your listeners are in the area, uh, come on out. Uh, there'll be plenty to uh, hear about, but maybe more importantly, I would love to hear your questions in person, Joe. So this is this is for your new book that you're you're putting out there. Tell us about this. Tell us about this new book. Give, give everybody the scoop on that. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, Dark Eon: Transhumanism and the War Against Humanity. Uh, Eon A E O N. Uh, the book is about the uh, development and a radical deployment of radical technologies, everything from gene editing to brain interfaces to Internet of Body sensors, of course, robotics and the penultimate artificial intelligence, the end of all humanity, at least according to many of the narratives swirling around it. Now, I got to say myself, um, I, I, I certainly understand the logic of human extinction by way of AI. Uh, there is a certain sense to it. But the more immediate concern, the more immediate threat is the uh, deployment of artificial intelligence technologies that are already significantly altering 
the kind of mass psychology, social psychology, uh, and also pinning people in to a digital system in which every interaction, be it personal or uh, commerce or with a government entity or anything, uh, the attempt is being made to digitize all of it. I, I personally see it more as a digital cage than um, a, a huge panoply of, of opportunities made possible by these technologies. No one will ever accuse me of being a techno-optimist. Now, let me ask you, um, why do you think not enough people are paying close enough attention to the dangers uh, of these of these AI technologies. Um, I mean, there are people that are warning about it, but only a select few are doing that. Uh, most are enabling it. Most are encouraging it. Most are like, this is the future. And they're talking about all the positives. And we don't really hear much about the negatives because I think people... I think a lot of these elites, a lot of these people at the top that have big followings, uh, they want to keep the message as positive as possible uh, because they, once once this thing, you know, really gets evolved enough, uh, these people are going to have no, the, the only way they're going to accomplish what they want to accomplish, these people at the top, is use it for nefarious purposes. Whether they use it for nefarious purposes or just their own purposes, uh, their own purposes obvious. let's face it, their own purposes usually are nefarious, you know? Uh, from our perspective, certainly. I mean, from mine, uh, I, I don't really see them achieving their goals as benefiting me or my own uh, in many or any ways. Uh, as far as the actual nefariousness of their motive, I've never pretended to know anyone's motive. Uh, I think that you know much of the uh, narrative around anybody from Klaus Schwab to Bill Gates to Peter Thiel to Elon Musk to Mark Zuckerberg, by and large, any motive that is uh, to be gleaned from their statements, it seems to me is, is mostly a projection of what people think that they feel or think that they think. Uh, it's safe enough. I mean, you know, the human mind is made to think uh, about what other people are thinking about, and it's a very good thing to do. But as far as the actual, <clears throat> the the what is in these people's hearts, even you know, Bill Gates, I'm not going to defend. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever is going on in his heart or in his head, uh, it's so rotten by the time it gets out into uh, the real world that uh, you know I'm not even going to go there. But even someone like Elon Musk, whom I've spent a tremendous amount of time critiquing and uh, slamming. I, I don't pretend to know what he uh, really feels in regard to his projects and in artificial intelligence and robotics. Uh, we have what he says, and what he says is that he's wanting to do it for the future of humanity, for the future right. of civilization. But usually uh, that's how it starts, though. And then as the process evolves and, you know, they get the people's trust, then that's when they start being nefarious. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, they're well acquainted with the narrative, and certainly that's uh, how much of it ends up. But uh, yeah, so everybody, for the most part, is not going to advertise anything that they do as being solely selfish and certainly not harmful to others. Um, and you, when you, again, uh, I to me, I don't think that, I think that the 
employment of the, the assumption that these people are in their own minds evil, that they are villains in their own uh, comic book story, uh, I don't really see the use of it. I, I think that other than to drum up uh, emotion, I guess that's very useful, but I, I would say that even that is a nefarious process, even if it's a small scale one. No, I, I think that it's even worse than that, Rory. I think um, by and large, uh, most of these people believe that what they're doing is for the betterment of them and their own. And what they want for the future of humanity or a future without humanity uh, is at obvious cross purposes with us. Uh, anyway, I don't want to get too hung up on that. Uh, if people want to believe that these guys are satanic, pedophile, cannibals, I suppose that's everyone's right. Uh, or maybe they just think that they're bad dudes. Uh, that's also uh, everyone's right. I, you know, I honestly don't care about <clears throat> that uh, sort of mythology other than it being a pain in my ass. Um, but I you know the, the most important thing to me is that it's recognized that these technologies have very clear purposes outside of the one that they're being sold on. So AI-driven education is supposed to be a way to uplift poor kids uh, and even to give advantages to children with uh, that, that are already privileged enough to have good educations, to give them that, that boost that they need, that one-on-one -on -one treatment uh, by way of AI. All of that is being sold as a means of increasing uh, the public's uh, uh, IQ, right? The collective IQ. I, I think that some of that will happen, but the two most profound effects are going to be the uh, that people have a relationship, especially the younger generation, that they are in, uh, basically uh, uh, acculturated to turning to machines for the most profound questions in their life, even more than they are now. Right. AI basically gives the internet and search engines and so on and so forth, it kind of gives it a personality. So <clears throat> already with just the internet, with just search engines, with just social media, already people turn to the internet as if it were a deity. If you want to be healed, if you want to find out why you're, if you know, why you are ill, if you want to find out what the weather is going to be, if you want to find out what the future of your city is going to be, at least in the next week, uh, if you want to find out what the future of the nation is, and oftentimes if you want to find out what meaning is, uh, many people, many millions, or really, I would say at this point, probably billions of people, one of the primary sources for all of the profound questions in their life is the internet. Uh, so we already have that, right? Uh, people already have more faith in the internet than they do in God or gods or angels or demons. What AI does is it adds, one of the many things it does, it adds a face to that. It adds a persona to that. And so the relationship that people already have with the global brain of the internet is, all, is being profoundly changed as we speak, but will be much more profoundly changed going forward with AI. And so AI education is creating, in many ways, what I see from my perspective, uh, good droids, right? Uh, good cyborgs, people who are uh, human AI symbiotes. But just going back to the point I made before, um, I don't necessarily think that the people behind this really believe that what they're doing is setting up humanity to become weaker, uh, to become uh, more spiritually impoverished, or even to become, uh, in many ways, servants or you could even say to an extent slaves. 
Uh, no, I think that to, for the most part, I mean, there are many evil people in the world from the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich. But I think that for the most part, they think that their slice of the pie will grow and that the system that they're putting in place will ultimately, for the, the long trajectory of humanity or the short-term trajectory of their uh, shareholders, uh, that they are doing good, right? Even if that only means that they're doing good in and of themselves. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, th this is all in all the push towards merging human beings with technology, the, the push towards elevating artificial minds or even just digital culture as being superior to the organic physical culture that we have had for the entirety of the human species history. Um, and certainly by occluding the spiritual realities beyond this physical world, uh, what they're doing is... Uh, in my opinion, uh, so profoundly damaging that I don't think that many who have already kind of succumbed to this digital system are going to recover in our lifetimes. I think that they are already human machine symbiotes. But uh, as it increases in intensity, uh, what will come out the other end? I don't think that will be every human on Earth, and I don't think that will be every society on Earth. But what will come out the other end will be something that is not necessarily recognizable as human as we uh, understand humanity now. Now, I have to ask you, and by the way, that was fantastic. I mean, right on point. Um, simulation. Have you ever given that much thought? Sure. Have you, have you ever studied that? Sure. Because I feel already in various ways we are robots. We are being controlled. And as time goes on, as technology continues to evolve, um, I, I, it's going to get worse. Go ahead, though. Your thoughts on this? The simulation theory is interesting. It's intelligent design for computer nerds. The most articulate version of it was probably Nick Bostrom's essay, Are We Living in a Computer Simulation? Like, like uh, for example, I get worried about with stuff like Neuralink, that could become more and more uh, crazier and crazier and more intense, you know, among many other programs that they're trying to uh, put in people and even even apps um, like TikTok. I mean, that's even mind control in a way. And, uh, you know, we could talk about that, too. That's a kind of a, a different thing, but it kind of factors in. But you, but you're, you were saying something. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I guess we're talking then about two different types of simulation. One, we're talking about the universe as simulation, which uh, Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, calls the religion of Silicon Valley, that we right. live, in fact, in a computer simulation. Uh, then yeah. there's the other notion that, they, uh, that human beings are increasingly being kind of herded into a simulation, a digital simulation, uh, a psychological simulation. I think that's absolutely correct. I think that anybody who has TikTok brain or Twitter brain or even Fox News brain or MSNBC brain lives by and large in a simulation, uh, one that is rapidly updated, very hypnotic and very addictive. So adding something like virtual reality to that already existent simulation only increases, it, it decreases the peripheral vision of that person who lives in the simulation. Uh, then if you were to have a device like Neuralink, if it were to ever be developed to the point that Elon Musk envisions it so that you have a full like a whole brain uh, system that is input and output so that the inputs would be able to stimulate visions 
voices, ideas, emotions, uh, then in fact, to the extent that anything was input into your brain, it would be an all-encompassing simulation, uh, or at least potentially an all-encompassing simulation. But, you know, it's interesting you mentioned TikTok. I think it's a really important uh, point to make that all of the fantasies of what Neuralink could be, and I think those are all really important because we have to imagine what a future like that would be in order to say no or yes to it now. But, but all of the fantasies basically just describe a much more exaggerated form of TikTok. Right. And, and what I was describing as well with Neuralink, like, like them controlling your movements, like them controlling your, because if they can control what your brain does, who knows? I mean, when it gets nefarious, if they want you to go out and do something that's against what you would, against your will, against what you would do normally, because they have this, you know, program in you. I mean, that's scary to think about, right? Yeah, well, one of the main uh, one of the main purposes that uh, Neuralink and its its various counterparts uh, are used for is to activate muscular systems. So the the purpose of Neuralink right now, beyond the commercial purpose that Elon Musk projects into the future, right. uh, the trials starting right now will be in order to restore movement in paralytics. Yeah. Uh, what that means is that Neuralink, the the device itself will be able to interpret the brain signals into electrical, basically into data that will be processed by AI. And then the, the output will be articulate muscular movements. So legs walking, uh, arms moving, maybe even uh, dexterous motions with the hands. If they succeed in that, then what you're talking about is that it will basically be baked into the cake that um, the design itself of Neuralink will include potentially the ability the ability to take control of someone's physical body. Uh, and, and yes, absolutely. I, I don't think, I, you know, you don't have to be a relativist to say that somebody taking control of you and turning you into a sock puppet literally uh, is nefarious. Uh, I, I, won't, I won't split hairs over that. Um, and, you know, to me, again, from my perspective, the entire prospect is pretty, um, uh, to, to say the least, undesirable, but certainly an ominous vision of the future, even if it doesn't end up there, even if it ends up with uh, it, something like the dream world that Elon Musk is selling uh, his supporters on, or Mark Zuckerberg's, or Jeff Bezos, or Sergey Brin, or any of them. Um, I, I think that even the best case scenarios from a person of my persuasion sound horrific. Uh, it, it, a world in which your desires are met by machines, a, a world in which your meaning is derived from machines, that all sounds like hell on earth to me. Um, if, I, if I can point something out real quick before I head out, though. Um, I want to uh, ask you before you point something out, have you given much uh, thought or studied or looked into uh, in detail the deep fake scenario and how that could be a big threat in the future? Yes, of course. Think about how law jurisdictions or investigators could frame somebody if they really want a suspect. I mean, we could talk about many different variables, how this could be um, a major violation of civil liberties, uh, you know, just the amount of intrusion. Go ahead. Well, you know, you look at what the, the, the recent um, uh, legislative, le legislative moves in uh, the EU and a lot of it is geared around protecting people from uh, things like deep fakes. It all kind of falls under the umbrella of misinformation and disinformation. 
But what it also empowers the EU with is the ability to squelch politically inconvenient, um, uh, politically inconvenient um, uh, messaging or information. And so if you think about the uh, legislation right now coming through, you're going to have an executive order in the U.S. on Monday. And then on the heels of that, you're going to have uh, over the, the coming, probably I would estimate uh, by spring of next year, you're going to start seeing real legislation coming up on AI and it's going to involve deep fakes. What you're going to get, in, just like you already have with the EU legislation, is a situation in which the government is going to be able to determine what is and isn't disinformation and misinformation, much like we have now. But they're going to have the authority to prosecute uh, people who are putting out supposed misinformation and disinformation. And so the uh, the proliferation of deep fakes will provide a great justification for that, because as much as I hate to admit it, a large number of people are easily fooled by such things. And even when they find out that something is a deep fake, right? Even when you realize Greta Thunberg didn't really talk about, uh, I'm sure you, you, maybe your viewers have seen that, but Greta Thunberg wasn't talking about the environmental uh, impacts of war. Um, a lot of people thought that was real, first off. A lot of people uh, thought it was real, then found out it wasn't real. Uh, and a lot of people know it isn't. But as these things keep proliferating, you don't really know what the proportion will be, but there's going to be, I think, a significant proportion of people, whenever they see a deep fake, and there's going to be a shitload more of them going forward, whenever they see a deep fake, they're going to believe it. Yeah, naive and, and gullible. I would say majority of the population, more than not, are naive and gullible, and they'll buy in right into it. You're exactly right. Maybe. Um, and even those, even those who are at least, they have enough information uh, to understand that it was a deep fake, that um, they're going to uh, still unconsciously, subconsciously, that emotion will continue to resonate. And so, uh, yeah, it's we're, we're really looking at a time, uh, some call it, Shane Cashman calls it post-reality, uh, you know, the end of reality. We are looking at a time in which on the ground, bubbling up from the bottom, you've got deep fakes that are going to just flood the zone and then coming down from the top, you're going to have all the same kind of propaganda, self-serving propaganda, and the ability in many nations to put down valid information just simply due to associations with the the, the insane sort of delusion that already exists on the ground. So uh, in short, uh, Rory, I would say that in many ways, people already kind of live in a deep fake world. It's just that the technology is rocketing forward to allow ever more precise and vivid deep fakes uh but uh brother I, I again i hate to cut it off but yeah, your thoughts are, you wanted to give one last thought before you took off go for I, i've really got to get it but uh go ahead no you said you wanted to say something uh before you took off and then we uh, I, I, i'll have to save that one for the next time can you pinpoint it in 30 seconds uh man I, when i say i gotta get it i, I mean i really all right buddy tell everybody where they can find you where they can find the book all that good stuff uh, you can find the book at skyhorsepublishing.com. You can also, if you are Bitcoin savvy, find it at Canonic XYZ. Uh, it's at a great discount there. And if you use Bitcoin, Dark Eon Transhumanism and the War Against Humanity, you can find uh, the, the you, you can find a great deal. You can uh, play around with your Bitcoin, and you'll also find a publisher that is um, very much into maintaining freedom by way of positive uses of technology. 
I'm not a big pro tech guy. I'm not a techno optimist and I'm certainly not a Bitcoin guy. Uh, but I think that what they're doing is at least very interesting. If you want to contribute to their cause, then uh, go for it. Do you have a lot of hope for cryptocurrency in the future? I'll have to save that one for next time too, but um, I think that it'll at least be a way to maintain some alternative markets outside the system. I hear you. I hear you. And real, real quick, real quick. Is there any way at this point in time we can avoid the whole, the, the one world uh, currency and the whole CBD, what they're trying to do? Uh, it's possible that it won't even pan out the way that they hope to make uh, many, many people would like to see CBD be uh, universal. Uh, I'm sorry, CBDCs uh, be universal. Uh, we'll see. But, it, you know, uh, I think that everything is moving towards digital currency, no matter what, uh, whether it's a CBDC or just your dollar in digital form or Bitcoin, things like that. And so uh, the more people try their best to maintain paper currencies, gold, whatever, you know, maintain organic economic networks, the better we're going to be. But that top down threat is very real and it's definitely coming soon. So it's already here. I mean, you can already see it in the mass digitization of the marketplace. Online is all digital, obviously. And then even out in the so-called real world, um, it's already here. So I, I think that people should really be thinking hard about what alternatives are going to go with. And Joe, Joe, I will, I will say this final thing. You agree that the U.S. dollar uh, is coming to an end, right? Don't you think the collapse is inevitable? No, I don't think anything's inevitable, but it's quite possible. Okay, I hear you. I hear you, uh, Joe. Um, you already said where everybody can find you, right? Yep. Uh, if, uh, right now, I'm just going to direct you Canonic XYZ, or if you want to hit any of my tour stops, JoeBot.xyz has the tour right at the top. All right, man. I got to get you back on soon because I got to talk to you a lot about a lot more stuff, man. Uh, uh, absolutely. would love to. Just uh, reach out. I'm here. Thank you right. very much for having me. Have a great weekend, man. God bless you. Cheers. Keep up the great work. We'll talk Thanks, to you, you soon. Too. Bye now. Uh, everybody, stay with us. We'll be right back. Uh, coming to you live from Palm Springs. Ever since I was a child, people said my family was cursed. Mom tried to protect us with God. Pop tried to protect us with wrestling. He said if we were the toughest, the strongest, nothing had ever hurt us. I believed him. We all did. Morning. Pants tomorrow, please, David. Perry, I want you to join your brothers in the ring. Yes, sir. I love that. Woo! Now, we all know Carrie's my favorite, then Kev, then David, then Mike. But the rankings can always change. What do you want in life, Kevin Von Eric? More ribs. <laughs> I want to be with my family. You know, be with my brothers. What do you like to do with your brothers? Together, we can do anything. We're here to restore justice to the wrestling federation that our father built with his own two hands. The hands that were passed down to us. The hands that will deliver the iron claw to you. So what do you think? Like we're alive. I love your family, Kevin. Don't be your uncle? Yes, sir. Oh, man, that makes me so happy. I talked to you about something, Mom. Dad's too tough on us. You gotta say something. Baby, that's what your brothers are for. Feel that? Ah. You feel that? Ah. That's pressure. I need to push you too hard. I'm fine, Kev. Seriously, I'm just sick. 
I'm scared, man. It all my head of control. What a terrible accident. I should have stopped him. I need to think about my family. Your job is to wrestle. Live up to that deal or we are through. I told you to look out for him! I just love being out there with you guys. It's the only thing that matters to me. I went online this morning and I rented us a beautiful house out by the beach. I figured if I made the reservation and packed our bags, it would eliminate most of the reasons to say no. This is nice. Kids look so happy. The Wi-Fi isn't working. Get a pad. I'm so sorry to bother you. That this is our house. This is your house? driving back to the city, then something happened. You want to stay here, but we're staying here. We need to get them out of here. They need to think everything's going to be OK. Everything is going to be OK, isn't it? We are seeing ongoing cyber attacks across the country. Something is happening, and I don't trust them. Everything I know, I have told you. I don't believe you. I would do anything to protect my family. What you do is your business. Get in the car right now! Haven't you been picking up on what's going on out there? Whatever it is, it's happening to all of us. I just want to know, what is the truth? zebra look the way it does? So embarrassing. Hey, focus. Is this how it went? No, it's different now. Oh, you've been on my mind recently. Yeah? Because you keep popping up in my dreams. You don't do anything, you're just there. So, this specific person, the remarkable nobody, I've also had that experience. Do you have a picture? Have you been dreaming about me? Have I been dreaming about you? Yeah. There's like a hundred messages. Somebody wants to interview me. This is strange. Maybe you should take a minute and think before you do anything drastic. Why me? Uh, I don't know. I'm special, I guess. How does it feel to go viral? Who's actually had a dream about me? 
you're scaring me, Pearl. I'm going to have nightmares. I wish I was the one people were dreaming about. Me too. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's something. How's he dealing with all this? We're not even the type of people that like attention, you know? Do you think other people are seeing you naked? Maybe thousands. Mm. I hope I'm behaving through your dreams. Oh, no, you're not. So I'm finally cool, huh? I didn't say that. You hear that, Janet? She's saying I'm a cool dad. Oh, yep. <laughs> I really feel like you're playing with fire here. Dad, please help me! I'm not actually doing anything to them. You know, fame can come with some less desirable side effects. You should be prepared for that. Maybe we should cool this thing off. What? What do you mean? It's embarrassing. Which part? You're a dream to me, dream to me. I guess I'll, uh... I guess I'll see you in my dreams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so of course not. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or a dempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back. Rory Sodder and the news coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. I do want to introduce my next guest. He's back with us. Great, great to have you back, Brandon. What's going on, man? It's been a while. I want to check in with you, get the 411, get the rundown, give me the scoop. What have you uh, been directing your focus towards? Well, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, the last time thanks for coming on, man. I'm happy to be here. I've uh, unfortunately the last few months had a pretty serious health issue, which is why I kind of dropped off the face of the earth. But I'm coming back from the surgery now, so I'm recovering. Um, but um, I've yeah. been, I suffer from a, a pretty serious autoimmune disease, and I been I needed to have major uh, surgery to uh, stop the the problem and so i um you know it's just one of those things i gotta live with i've had the disease since i was 18 so that's kind of why i dropped off the face of the earth um for the last few months but i was also working um and uh, you see my book behind me uh, previously oh. we spoke about biohack the red one but yeah. now uh the shadow war iran's quest for supremacy has been what i've been focused on i've been um warning anyone who will listen uh about the prospect of world war three erupting not yeah. in ukraine or even taiwan but rather out of the middle east and yeah. it's looking like unfortunately i was correct yeah. um and the the book came out in july i finished writing it though in end of may 2021 and then it sort of sat 
being edited and there was some back and forth with the publisher on some controversial things I had put in there. Um, and uh, basically I predicted this war almost to a T uh, in this book. And the first four chapters are all about the coming, what was at that time, the coming third intifada. Um, and all of this is being conducted by Iran. Uh, everything in the Middle East that you're seeing with Israel, it's not isolated. This is all part of a larger Iranian plan. Yeah, and the fact that you called this two years ago, that's pretty impressive, man. You were ahead of the curve. You were, you were, uh, I, I was, unfortunately, you know, and I was briefing. And as you know, I briefed the Pentagon. And um, I was talking about this back then with people who really could have made a difference. But for whatever reason, they chose to ignore what I was saying and sort of just politely nod. Um, but, uh, you know, luckily, the solutions I have in the book are still very much relevant, I believe, uh, today. And if we applied them, uh, we would be able to avoid what I think is rapidly uh, approaching to be the Third World War. But time's not on our side. I don't know if the Biden administration views the situation as I do. In fact, I don't think they do. Uh, I also know that they've hired people who are literal Iranian <laughs> uh, spies, um, and uh, they seem to be uh, more interested in appeasing Iran rather than containing it and abandoning our friends in the region rather than empowering our friends. So, and, I, and I've talked about how this is probably going to play out. The U.S. is going to get dragged into it. We already are. We already are. And we're probably going to spend trillions of dollars. Millions of lives will probably be lost. And I've said that this is probably going to last longer than Afghanistan and Iraq because we're we're fighting a religious war. Right. We're we're fighting a potential World War Three. We've got we're in the Middle East. I mean this this is not going to be a short short process. Um, and then you've got China, Russia, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Iran coming to Palestine's defense, right. um, which. I mean, I worry that we're going to get nuked because we're getting into something. So, I don't yeah. like being the world police. And now we're going to start sending a bunch right. of money. And then we all know China is going to plan on taking Taiwan by Christmas. So, you know, that's the rumor going around. Right. Who knows? But we all know um, the reality is when you have a weak leader as a president of the United States. Right. Uh, most world leaders are always focused on what we're doing first. And when, right. they see, when they see somebody that's not going to react, they're going to test the waters with all their enemies. And that's, that's right. exactly what's going on around the world. That's right. right. And everybody, there's a, yeah. everybody that's hated each other for as long as we can remember is really going at it. I mean, yeah. yes, they've been going at it throughout the years, but now it's a different ball game. It's a different level of intensity. Yeah. Well, and furthermore, Rory, um, actually, U.S. foreign policy for the last 30 years, really since the end of the Cold War, has actually brought these people together in yeah. a new alliance against us. Uh, you know, the Russians are not natural allies of China. Uh, China no. and Russia are not natural allies of Iran. And yet, and the Turks, by the way, Turkey, a NATO, a NATO member is actually working against the United States interests, working with the Russians and the Iranians and the Chinese. 
the Turks don't like any of those people that and I just yet mentioned. they're all finding and a way to work together. Working together to oppose us. And so, uh, you know, our policies have really been, and this has been the sort of what I've worked on for many years now is critiquing our foreign policy and trying to offer more sensible solutions. Um, in the Middle East in particular, uh, you know, you mentioned a long war. Um, I actually think it really depends on what we end up doing. So, um, you know, if Hezbollah opens up a second front, which I think they will, um, if Hezbollah in Lebanon opens up a second front against Israel, that is the proof positive, in my opinion, that Iran was behind all of these attacks. And at that point, because we are an ally of Israel, it is my opinion that if the United States is going to do anything, it should only be done after Hezbollah opens up a second front. Because right now, Israel can handle the situation if it's just versus Hamas. But if they have to deal with thousands of precision-guided missiles coming across the border from Lebanon, we're going to have to help them stop the war machine that Hezbollah has, which is Iranian-backed. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean we listen to Lindsey Graham and start blowing up oil refineries in Iran or start talking about invading Iran. That's what the neocons want. Right. I don't believe that's the right way forward. I think no. if we are going to have to get involved, we should use limited air power to hit the supply chains coming out of Iran, going into Lebanon, military targets. And so the Israelis do not want American boots on the ground. The Israelis have been very clear. You're going to get in the way. Don't commit forces here. My worry is that the American neoconservatives are going to use this as an excuse to initiate their invasion of Iran. What we should be doing is telling the Israelis, if you've got it covered on the ground, we're going to help you in the air. And that's as far as we can go because we're not going to do an invasion of the region because that's not going to help anybody. But my fear is with the current group that we have running Washington, they're going to use this as an excuse to go too far. And we cannot afford to do a regime change mission in Iran or in Syria. That's another fear I have is that they're going to use this as a backdoor excuse to finish what they want to finish in Syria. Um, but if we can limit our involvement to something like airstrikes against, you know, the movement of resources and personnel from Iran into Lebanon, if Hezbollah opens up that second front, then we actually might be able to actually enjoy a win in the Middle East without having, you know, the Third World War at our doorstep. But the problem that we're facing right now is, as you noted, feckless leadership. How do we, you know, behave as a responsible superpower, helping our allies, containing our enemies without going too far? And right now, the adults are definitely not in charge in Washington. Right. And, and I don't think we're getting all of the answers and full transparency from this war. Um, I, I definitely think it's a two-way street. I think they're both provoking each other, just like they have for the longest time, Palestine and Israel. Don't you agree? Yeah, but I do think that in this case, Hamas and, and Hezbollah and Fatah, in December of 2016, and I have this in the book, right. the leadership of Hamas and Fatah and, and, and Hezbollah yeah. all met in Beirut with the then general Qasim Soleimani, who's the head of the Quds Force of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And they decided to pull all of their resources together under Iran's direction to 
lay the groundwork for initiating the third intifada against Israel. Now, in my book, I talk about how basically, if you remember the Trump administration, those four years, there was a lot of shadow boxing going on between Iran, its proxies, and the West. And right. that reached a crescendo with President Trump basically waking up and saying, you know what, I'm not going to play this game. I'm going to kill Soleimani. And he assassinated Soleimani, which was the equivalent of their General Patton, uh, you know, for terrorism. And the killing of Soleimani in 2020 basically cut off the escalation into war at that time. But the moment that Trump left office and Biden took over, Biden began reversing all the Trump policies in the Middle East, you know, trying to restore the Obama nuclear agreement with Iran, distancing ourselves from Israel and and uh, Saudi Arabia. And what that created was a window of opportunity for Iran to go back to those original plans of starting a third intifada by using their proxies in Hamas, Fatah and Hezbollah. And so it is true. You're right. There's always provocations going on between the two sides, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But the Palestinian side, in my opinion, has been co-opted, and I proved this actually in the book, has been co-opted by the Iranians who want to use Hamas and Hezbollah and Fatah and Islamic Jihad and all these other groups operating in the Palestinian territories. Iran wants to use them as cannon fodder, get them to start a war with Israel. And the strategic goal is to weaken American allies in the region, notably Israel, as a means of rolling back American power overall in the region. This will allow Iran to grow, and it will allow for Iran to bring their friends in China and Russia deeper into the region to back up their bid for supremacy over the U.S.-backed allies in the region. And so you're right, there's definitely a lot of ancient hatreds going on here, but you have to understand the Palestinian side they provoked this conflict, and they did it not according to their own timetable or will. They did it because their masters in Tehran ordered them to. And one last thing, what was going on at the time? Three weeks before this horrible terrorist attack that Hamas did in Israel, three weeks before then, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu flew to the UN and held up a map. And the map was entitled The New Middle East. And it showed how Israel and the Sunni Arab states, after 50 years of warfare between them, were setting aside their differences and were coming together. And were going to start working together to contain their shared threat of Iran. Three weeks later, Hamas does this horrible terrorist attack in which they targeted the most vulnerable people in the Israeli population, the elderly, women, children. They did horrible things and they filmed it. It was this attack by Hamas was designed to basically create the situation where the Israeli government had no choice but to forcefully respond. And the moment that Israel had to forcefully respond, then they started attacking Gaza. Saudi Arabia's leaders called up Israel and said, remember that deal we were working on? It's on ice now because Palestinian Arabs are dying. Well, who benefited from that? Only Iran did. Because now they can, they can slow down the formation of an anti-Iran coalition in the region uh, because they can gin up the old hatreds between the Sunni Arabs and Israel while capitalizing on it for strategic gain for themselves. And so that's what's going on. That's why this war is beginning. Iran is truly the master uh, behind, you know, they're the, the men behind the curtain in this conflict. Do you see Iran blowing up Israel? 
Uh, it's not going to be direct. So they, you know, a Saudi official once I heard described to me, and this is quoted in the book, and I think this has been clear as well. But back in twenty, she described Iran as a paper tiger with steel claws and Hamas and Hezbollah and all those terrorist groups that Iran funds and supports and the IRGC these are the steel claws of Iran's paper tiger Iran does not want to fight a fair fight against any major military power Israel or the United States they would lose what they want I don't know what happened um Let's take a quick commercial. We'll come right back. Stay with us, everybody. Uh, Brandon, we're waiting for Brandon. Let's see here. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or adempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. Brandon, you back with us? There's some connection issues going on. I don't know what's going on. I keep trying to get Brandon back. I don't know. Brandon, you there? We'll take another quick commercial. We'll come right back, see if we can get this fixed. Stay with us. Let's do this. People always say, don't assume the worst. You excited? Yeah. Is it a boy or girl? We don't know. Sometimes the worst is exactly what you should assume. So my wife is in the hospital. She's about to give birth. Drive. This is a family emergency. I'm your family emergency now. Whatever it is that you want, it's yours. Is this the wife? David, where are you? Ah! I mean, are you happy? You and your wife have a happy marriage? Stick away from my family. That's rude. You interrupting me, don't. You know what I don't need tonight? Stress. <laughs> Let's just make wise decisions. Watch the speed limit. Are we going? You're not listening to me. I will shoot you. And this cop! I told you not to speed. We should play a little game. I want you to tell me the truth. If you don't, I am gonna kill Mr. Happy Trucker and this waitress. Ready? Pick, pick. 
You've got me confused with someone else. Really? I'm not who you think I am. I never even told you who I think you are, so how could you know you're not who I think you are? Tick, 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 tick. Sit back down! It's getting good. Oh. I'm not gonna die tonight. Dressed up for this. I, I wanted to be 100% sex tonight, and you cut that in half. I'm now 50% sex. People tend to think the more violent the death, the higher to heaven you go. Better to rain in hell, wouldn't you agree? Pick up the phone, James. What, what, what are you, ghosting me? What are you, Dr. Ross, my psychiatrist? <laughs>
There's like a hundred messages. Somebody wants to interview me. This is strange. Maybe you should take a minute and think before you do anything drastic. Why me? Uh, I don't know. I'm special, I guess. How does it feel to go viral? Who's actually had a dream about me? Scaring me, Paul, I'm going to have nightmares. I wish I was the one people were dreaming about. Me too. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's something. How's he dealing with all this? We're not even the type of people that like attention, you know? Do you think other people are seeing you naked? Maybe thousands. Mm. I hope I'm behaving through your dreams. Oh no, you're not. So I'm finally cool, huh? I didn't say that. You hear that, Janet? She's saying I'm a cool dad. Oh, <laughs> I really feel like you're playing with fire here. Zach, please help me! I'm not actually doing anything to them. You know, fame can come with some less desirable side effects. You should be prepared for that. Maybe we should cool this thing off. What? What do you mean? It's embarrassing. Which part? Gisela. Guess I'll see you in my dreams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course not. Thanks. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or adempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back, Rory Sodder in the news. Uh, Brandon, are you with us? I fixed it. Yes, I'm back. Okay, okay. I, I, I do. We do got a few more minutes. I, I, I definitely want you to uh, tell tell everybody what the biggest takeaway you want from this book to be is. Okay, so the biggest takeaway is that the situation with Iran is has reached a crisis level. We have a solution out. It's what I was talking about earlier. Restoring the Trump administration's policy of the Abraham Accords, using all of our leverage over Saudi Arabia, the Sunni Arab states, and Israel to get them into an alliance together to contain Iran while we put maximum pressure on Iran economically and diplomatically. It is not in anyone's interest for us to have U.S. troops invading the Middle East again. We should avoid that like the plague. But we should always have the backs of our friends, especially capable friends like the Israeli Defense Force. The problem that we have faced is because beginning in 1979, the Democratic Party, and this is very much a partisan problem, the Democratic Party 
supported the removal of the Shah of Iran, who was a very powerful American ally in the region, and Jimmy Carter, the president at the time, who was very upset with the Shah for human rights violations. He was also upset because the Shah would not work in the group around Jimmy Carter known as the Georgia Mafia. The Shah would not cut them into the Brown Bovary nuclear energy deals that, that uh, the Shah was doing. The Shah was trying to move Iran off of oil and into nuclear power. He was going to be one of the first countries to go totally nuclear. Um, and then the the Carter, part of his rivalry with the Shah, he started writing these love letters to the Grand Ayatollah Khomeini, who was in exile in Paris. He's telling him, if you go back and take over the revolution against the Shah, I won't stop you as long as you work with America. Khomeini lied and said he would. Carter then sent a guy named General Heiser who was the NATO commander, an Air Force general, one of ours, to go down to Tehran before the Ayatollah could get there and told all of the pro-American uh, Iranian generals that were going to stop the Ayatollah from coming back. He told them, President Carter wants you to let Ayatollah and the Islamists take over, and we're going to make a deal. Well, it turns out that the Ayatollah was lying. He came back and began murdering all the pro-American people in the Iranian government, began killing all the Jews, and then he began basically preparing to wage an, uh, a religious war upon all of his neighbors. And after he died in the 80s, that hatred of his neighbors and the desire to destroy the American order was passed on to his successor, uh, another guy named uh, Ayatollah Khamenei. And so... We're living right now with a regime in Iran that is completely insane. They have absolutely no desire to be treated like a regular country. They want to go into a third world war because they believe that this will allow for them to destroy their enemies and also achieve their religious objective of restoring the Mahdi, their Messiah, having him come back and basically create a Shiite Islamic world peace. And so we are dealing with a regime that is fundamentally not like other regimes, and they will stop at nothing to initiate a grander war that will destroy their enemies and elevate themselves. Now, they don't want to fight us in a direct fight because they know that we're more powerful. But they do want to use terrorism and nuclear terrorism in particular, as well as cyber terrorism and electromagnetic pulse attacks. They want to use those unconventional methods to destroy us. And I would just caution your audience one last thing. We're going to get involved militarily with, the, with this conflict, especially if Hezbollah opens up a second front. If that happens, what will happen in the United States and in Europe we will wake up in the next six months, possibly, to dirty bombs going off in our major cities because I have been tracking this story since last November. I wrote two pieces at American Greatness about it, and I'm a senior editor at 1945.com. I just recently wrote a follow-up. Back in November, the Mossad told the CIA, who didn't believe them, Mossad told the CIA that they detected Iran shipping uranium to their proxies, the Houthi rebels in Yemen. The Houthis have been engaged in a major fight against Saudi Arabia for the last eight years on behalf of Iran. What happened was Al-Qaeda got wind that this uranium shipment was coming to Yemen, and they intercepted it. So now somewhere in the Middle East or elsewhere, Al-Qaeda has its hands on uranium. A month after that, in around Christmas of 2022, 
London authorities intercepted kilos of uranium being sent from Iran to Heathrow Airport. It is believed that Iran was sending this uranium to their people in operating in England. I believe that this is not the only instance where they have done this. I think that the Iranians have been very successful in moving their nuclear material out of Iran through these covert uh, supply chains that they've spent 40 years building globally and moving it into the hands of their people hiding out in other countries like the United States. People who snuck across our broken southwestern border, by the way, lying in wait, where they now are getting their hands on this small amount of uranium to build a dirty bomb, to detonate it if and when the United States gets involved with the wider war. I believe that this is part of a larger plan. And so we can stop this. We can slow it down at least. But it requires the kind of leadership right now that is not there in D.C. We're going to have to work much more closer with our allies in the Middle East, Israel and the Saudis in particular, to contain Iran and to strangle that regime. We're going to have to then get serious about border security. Okay, We need to seal up that southwestern border. And lastly, instead of hunting Russian ghosts under every bed at Mar-a-Lago or going after angry parents at PTA board meetings, it would be nice if the FBI would start taking their counterintelligence duties and counterterrorism duties much more seriously and start dedicating most of their resources to hunting down the thousands, and we know there are thousands, of Hezbollah and Hamas and Iranian agents who have spent the last several years infiltrating our country from the southwestern border. If we don't start doing those things that I talked about, World War III is here, and we're going to lose a lot of people in the process. I hear you. I hear you, Brandon. Very well said. Um, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get involved. Well, uh, the first thing you do is follow me on Twitter. I have a pretty active Twitter feed, at WeTheBrandon. I also have that handle used for Truth Social and Getter, at WeTheBrandon. I'm a senior editor at 1945.com, and that's spelled 1-9, and then you spell out 45.com. And then uh, you can get my books anywhere they're sold. Uh, Brick-and-mortar stores are going away, unfortunately. I love the old bookstore, but they're going away. So I just tell everybody to keep it easy. Just go to Amazon or any online retailer. You'll probably have no problem getting my books there. Sounds good, my friend. We'll talk to you very Thank soon. You Wishing you the best. Keep up the Thank great you. work. Thank you, sir. And uh, God bless. God bless. All right, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, I do want to welcome uh, Bill Muckler. Bill, how are you, buddy? Hey, I'm great, Rory. Good to see you. And uh, I really enjoyed listening to your last guest. If I, uh, if you ask me one word uh, comment on that, I would say ditto. Yeah. How was your show today, man? Happy, 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 red, happy, uh, happy Friday. Yeah, yeah Red Friday. Red Friday, yeah, yeah. Uh, I do take one exception to uh, what what he said, and this, of course, is just opinion. I just finished uh, my latest novel, and in my novel, I don't have the um, terrorists bringing uh, uranium across the southern border. I actually have them uh, bring. Uh, causing a very big diversion and coming through with a suitcase nuke that they're going to use later on uh, in the book. And uh, I think uh, the people, 
who have read my book are saying, wow, you nailed this whole thing uh, because I started writing this five years ago about uh, terrorists coming across our southern border and infiltrating with uh, previously in, embedded sleeper cells to uh, cause massive 9-11 uh, type attacks in, in America. I hope that never happens, but I can envision it to happen. Well, we anyway, about yeah, anyway you, you mentioned something about Red Friday. Yeah, uh, that's another thing your previous guest mentioned. Uh, boy, I hope that we don't have uh, our, our young men and women uh, in combat over there because all we're going to do is create uh, more Gold Star families and more uh, guys uh, and gals with, um, with a lot of loss of limbs. And uh, it, it's just not good because I don't see anything coming good that can come out of uh, fighting people that are not uh, playing by the same rules that we are. We're, we're bound and determined to use the Geneva Convention. They, they're not signatories on the uh, Geneva Convention. They could care less about it. They want to kill anybody any way they possibly can which uh, one of their favorites is just chopping the heads off of people. We don't do that. <clears throat> and Bill, you brought up the whole terrorist attacks scenario of how people coming across our border and the different targets that they may have. Uh, we, we brought that up on the panel. You know, there's a lot of places that they could go after, you know, the Mall of America, the Empire State Building, you know, uh, maybe a popular sports stadium. Uh, yep. You know, it's endless. Uh, hospitals, uh, they're all they're all soft targets that uh, they can just walk in. And these are suicide uh, bombers. They can walk in with weapons or with bombs uh, strapped on them and uh, cause a lot of mayhem. And I and I really think and this is uh, kind of the premise of my book is in order to do this, they would not necessarily care that much about how much collateral damage they caused. They would not really care about how many people they killed, American citizens they killed. They would be more concerned with how they can disrupt our infrastructure so we live under a long-lasting, never-ending uh, pain of being without services or being locked down or, uh, you know, being without power, being without medical care in an entire region, uh, you know, or something like that. Because those are the things that people have to live with every day. Uh, right now, uh, this this was on our show Wednesday night, by the way. They still haven't caught this guy. What's his name? Robert Card in Maine. Yeah. And we were the ones, we broke that story, actually. Yeah. Matthew P. Uh, broke that story as it happened, uh, right, you know, in real time. Uh, mm -hmm. They still haven't uh, haven't got that guy. Is this another diversion? It seems like every time that the Bidens, uh, the Democrats, have some kind of a problem or issue or something like that, or there's something going on they don't want us to know about, all of a sudden, there's a diversion. I, boy, I, I got my tinfoil hat on now, but it seems like it happens that way. <laughs> yeah, and Bill, it, it, in reality, 80% of the time, they find the shooter within a few hours. Um, obviously, there are those rare occasions uh, mm -hmm. where it does take perhaps weeks months, uh, sometimes even years, but that's really rare. But 
this and this guy's background is not the typical shooter uh, type background. Usually, it's somebody with nose rings, purple hair, lives in their mom's basement. This guy was a firearms instructor, ex-military. Um, you know, I mean, no yeah. dum Not not, yeah, not, not exactly. that, uh, You know, and he had hundreds of he had a hundred acre, acres of land. Apparently, I mean, this guy mm. was well-to-do, successful, uh, had a lot going for him. Apparently, he had some psychological issues, uh, but who doesn't? Um, yeah, I don't know. And they they found his a his car abandoned. I think he's probably in Canada at this point. I mean, they surrounded his house yesterday because they were tipped off saying that he could be in there because they thought they saw someone in there. And turns out nobody in there. Then they go mm -hmm. to other, all these other places getting tipped off saying that he might be in, the, in, in these other places. And they, they don't get any, any answers, no clues. And then they just keep, it's weird. There's, something's weird. Something really weird is going on. There's so many unanswered questions so much suspicion very sketchy yeah and uh you mentioned his uh, prior military background actually apparently he's still in the active reserves because mm -hmm. they were talking about several months ago he was on two-week duty well that's what the reserves do one they go weekends and then one uh two-week period uh usually in the summertime uh for uh, uh training and at that time they found that he was hearing voices in his head so they actually recommended him and I guess put him in some kind of uh, psychological testing and, and so forth. And uh, so here's a guy with, uh, you know, he's hearing voices in his head to kill people. And uh, we don't do anything about it. And every one of these shooters is another example of how, oh, we got to get rid of assault weapons. I don't even know what kind of weapon he used. And so far, they've never even said what type of weapon it was. It's obviously a long uh, rifle, say, you know, a long arm uh, rifle. It could be an AR-15, could be an AK-47. But immediately the, the media goes with assault weapon, uh, you know, and uh, there are weapons of war, I think is one of their favorites now. And so what they want to do is they want to take my weapons away from me. Here I am. I'm just an old Marine here in Sebring, Florida. And I'm supposed to give up my weapons because they let, let some crazy guy go out and shoot a bunch of people up, you know. Right. right. And he le it says here he legally purchased a sniper rifle. So it was legal. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the alleged attacker who killed 18 and wounded 13 Wednesday night in Lewiston, Maine, used a legally purchased sniper rifle. So, I mean, no law, you know, nothing would have prevented mm -hmm. it. I mean, the guy did everything the right way, yeah. and he decided to carry out an act of evil. I mean, when people have their mind made up, you're not going to change it, and, you know, it's... It is what it is. It's horrible, yeah. but that's the world we live in. Now, another thing they're talking about. No, go ahead. Uh, less than in less than thirty murders in that whole state last year. It was voted the safest state in the union, mm -hmm. and then this kind of stuff happens. Yeah, one one person disrupts everything. Now. Even if a guy is mentally unbalanced, that does not mean, in fact, I think it's even uh, more so 
that he would be able to plan and carry out these uh, and execute these very devious, detailed attacks. I yeah. think his mind would be totally focused on here's exactly how I'm going to do it when I walk in the door and so forth, uh, you know, way I'm going to do it. And so when they talk about him being um, obviously mentally imbalanced because he's hearing voices, all the rest of that stuff, that does, that almost says this is the type of guy that's capable of really coming up with a very devious plan. Now, as far as where he's at, if it was me, I know what I would do. I don't I have no idea what his motive is because we don't know yet uh, if he plans on killing himself or if he plans on staying in that area. But if it was me, I think I'd have a getaway car and I'd be heading due west and I would be through Vermont and New Hampshire and into New York and maybe in Ohio by the next morning, you know, where nobody would even think of looking for me. I, so, I mean, uh, you, you can you can go a long way in three or four hours in an automobile in the United States of America, especially at night. You know, you can go 200 miles easy. I hear you. No, I hear you. And, you know, the man the manhunt continues. Who knows um, how this is going to play out? You know, mm -hmm. in the meantime, you think it'll be a, when they get him, it'll probably be a shootout. He's not going down without a fight. That, that seems that, that seems uh, pretty sure, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so, too. But in the meantime, we've got troops going to um, the, the Far East. I mean, not the Far East, the Mideast. Do you worry yeah. that Israel, the war scenario, could turn into a Ukraine money laundering, never-ending sort of funding scenario? Sure looks like it, doesn't it? I mean, Not good, would, man, not good. Why, why would Biden want to bundle up money for the uh, southern border, Israel and Ukraine all together in one big package. Right. They don't do anything just by happenstance. They do everything with a purpose. And uh, their purposes typically aren't really in the best interest of the uh, we the people. Yeah. No, I hear you. And what, what else is going on today? Anything else you've been uh, putting your mind towards? Yeah, actually, when you, when you called, I was in the process of um, uh, sharing my uh, my uh, eleven o'clock show uh, on the uh, Facebook sites. I got about uh, I I've got quite a few listeners, by the way, uh, Rory, that are actually sharing the videos and um, and uh, making comments and liking them. And then I've got a bunch of sites that I uh, some too, and I'm hearing from people. They're not my Facebook friends. They're people I've never heard of before or whatever. I mean, great people, and they make some nice comments and everything. You know, they like the show and everything. So it's something that I knew immediately it was going to be, you know, I'm probably talking to uh, to air. But after a few weeks, maybe a little bit would catch on, and hopefully now after a few months, uh, I think, you know, we're building up, a, you know, a good, nice audience. Oh, absolutely. 100%. No, for sure. And it's just going to keep getting better and better. And we got a lot to look forward to. Um, I, I want to mention to you uh, in regards to uh, Biden and, you know, this whole China Taiwan scenario seems inevitable that we're going to get involved and uh, this could happen by Christmas, I think, this war. 
What are your thoughts on that? That's that's definitely one possibility. Um, I I kind of lean towards something else, although uh, it's just uh, just scenarios that I that I come up with in my funny little brain. I think that China is really behind this whole thing as the main distractor, and they are obviously they're they're funding Iran because they're they're uh, buying Iran's oil, so they're shipping million, million billions of dollars to Iran, and I think they're also in some kind of partnership with uh, Russia because we know Xi Jinping and Putin have been uh, buddying up together. And then they got uh, their proxy, North Korea. And I think all of these, these three are really involved in, um, and of course, Iran uh, with Hezbollah and uh, as being like the next uh, level of uh, down of proxies, uh, Hezbollah and Hamas. I think China is getting them to a point where they're going to cause America to be so stretched out that they won't even have to have a battle with us. They'll they'll bankrupt us. They'll deplete our military. They'll get us in such a condition that we can't function at all. And then they'll just walk in and take over Taiwan. And when they take over Taiwan, America becomes a third world uh, country because Taiwan produces the chips that we use. And now Hey, I, I go out to lunch and I go in and uh, and I've got a square car reader for my phone. You know that I can take credit cards to sell my my uh, books. I go in and I just tap where my chip is on their little chip on their reader and boom, <laughs> press the button. You know, I usually give like a thirty percent tip and uh, they email me a receipt. Uh, let let's face it, if we don't have chips, we we don't have a country anymore. And everybody has to have their new cell phones and, uh, you know, everything is based on chips, right? Yeah. And we we do all of our financial transactions now based on chips. And I think what, if they if they can take over Taiwan, that cuts off our supply of uh, microchips. And when our supply of microchips uh, is cut off, all of a sudden we've, we've got no way of, uh, of communicating, no way of communicating. Uh, uh, conducting financial transactions, I think we're done. Oh, I, I agree. And, I, and I've said that the only justifiable war that we should be defending is Taiwan. I, yeah. you know, I, I don't think we should be defending anybody else. And uh, there's, many oh, reasons, there's many reasons why we should be defending Taiwan. Obviously, the semiconductor is a big one. Taiwan's mm -hmm. always been a huge ally of us. They've never done us wrong. Uh, I think, you know, I think Israel has done us wrong on numerous occasions. I don't think they're as innocent as various people like to put portray them to be. But Taiwan has never done us wrong. So I think Taiwan, uh, we owe it to them. And they they make such a huge impact on our economy. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's not China's territory. It's not China's land. China doesn't, you know, deserve you know, Taiwan. This is bullshit. It, Taiwan, China is trying to do. I, I understand what Xi, Xi Jinping is trying to do. He's trying to conquer as much as possible, and he's trying to make the move while Biden's in office. But it's not right. Yeah. Well, this whole thing started back in uh, 1945 when uh, uh, World War II was um, was over, and the Japanese were defeated in uh, China. 
and Mao Zedong then was uh, coming through China and, uh, in a sense, killing off any political dissident or anybody that they uh, that disagreed with him. And so that caused a massive uh, fleeing of Chinese citizens to the island of Taiwan, and they set up their own government and, and everything. And Mao Zedong obviously was pissed because he he wanted those he didn't want those people to leave, and he looked at them as a threat, as competitors, as a as a uh, opposing nation. So what they did because we in the in the UN set up this whole uh, stupid uh, thing with the UN Security Council where China and Russia have a seat on there. We've never been able to give Taiwan stat nation status. So Taiwan is really doesn't belong to anybody. You know, they're not even a member of the UN. Not that being a member of the UN does anybody any good. It certainly isn't doing Israel any good right now. But your, your scenario is the Chinese could take over Taiwan by Christmas. And I think that's really a real, a real thing. I was just giving an alternative. It's whether Xi Jinping wants to go fast or if he wants to go slow. If he wants to go fast, he's going to take Taiwan right now. If he wants to go slow, he's going to fund all these dis distractions and dissidents and everything. Uh, and uh, uh, eventually, over the next period, the next two or three years, completely uh, bankrupt us. Hey, we're already a nation in decline. I don't see how anybody can uh, disagree with that. The Biden crime uh, enterprise hasn't done America any good. In fact, I'm even talking to people now that uh, are really Democrats, and they're saying they're voting for Trump. <laughs> Can, who would have thought? <laughs> and I do have to, I do have to mention. You know, it's scary what's ahead of us in regards to the economic collapse because it's about to get much worse. Um, it's probably going to be worse than 2008. It's going to be like the 1930s. I would say by 2024, uh, we're going to see it all. Uh, yeah. And people think this is the worst right now. And I, I'm telling everybody, this is the tip of the iceberg. You're going to see things that you've never seen before. This is going to be awful. It's going to be tragic. It's going to be devastating on so many levels. I mean, the real estate market is overvalued. Uh, you know, inflation is going to turn into stagflation. Uh, the interest rate scenario is a, a very tricky, tricky matter. Um, the commercial uh, real estate market, I mean, that's, that's in for a lot of hurt considering all the people that are working remotely and all these buildings that are, you know, in certain ways going under, they're getting sold for way underpriced. Uh, for what what they were bought for, uh, because it, it just goes it goes on and on. And, and the residential I just mentioned earlier, way overpriced. I mean, there's it's destined to collapse. Collapse um, stock market. I mean, it's already suffering miserably, and it's going to get worse. Uh, and stagflation, uh, like I said earlier, stagflation will be a thing. I think mortgage rates are going to go to twelve to thirteen percent by this time next year. Yeah, this is going to be reminiscent of uh, Jimmy Carter in the late 70s when we had the misery index of um, of uh, several indicators added together uh, became more than 20%. At that time, it was unemployment plus interest rates. 
And I agree with you 100%. And here's the one thing uh, I, I think you just didn't get a chance to get to that I think is the most devastating is our our uh, citizens' credit card debt. Over a trillion dollars in debt, credit card debt. And so what's happening now is most people I know, they can't make it because it's costing them an extra seven or $800 a month to live on. They don't have that extra seven or 800 so they put it on their credit card. And they can't, and because they don't have the money to live on anyway, so they have to borrow it on their credit card. All they manage to do is pay off the interest on their credit card. So the principal keeps growing exponentially while all they're doing is struggling to pay off the uh, interest. So that $1 trillion very quickly is going to probably get closer to $2 trillion of credit card debt. And when that happens, along with all the indicators that you highlighted, like uh, the housing, um, you know, uh, interest rates and the residential market being overpriced, and all the office buildings are mostly vacant now. Uh, they're not generating income. I'm afraid, you know, you're right. Um, we, we're going to be back to 1929. Crazy times, crazy times. Yeah. Bill, Bill, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get involved, all that good stuff. Hey, it's it's right it's right there on the uh, blue line, right underneath our, our our beautiful mugs there, where it says the NextGenUSA.com and Centralist TV. I'm on uh, Facebook, and uh, I've also got my own website, uh, 2020AmericaBook.com, and uh, you can buy my books. Hey, I'm offering this book. Let me do a quick commercial. You can get it. I'll send you this send this book to anybody you buy as a gift for $20 I'll pay the shipping and handling the taxes and everything if you go out to buy a christmas present you're going to go all over the place spend 50 or 100 bucks you won't get anything as priceless as my signature in this beautiful book <laughs> I love it I love it I love it Bill always a pleasure my friend have a great weekend you and I will talk yeah. very, you and I Yeah will talk very soon. Hey, hey thanks for having me on this this is this is awesome I love it Absolutely, man. God bless you. I'll talk to yeah. you soon. God bless you as well. All right, buddy. Uh, everybody, uh, it's been a fantastic show today. I want to thank you all for tuning in another episode of Rory Sodder and the news in the books. Have a fantastic weekend. Until next time, God bless. Much love. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>